Over the years, I've had the marvelous opportunity with men and women of all ages to actually see and be part of that moment when they and sometimes even others around them have met Jesus. I'd argue that there is no more glorious moment in human existence. I've gotten the chance to watch the way that words and actions and love and listening all conspire together with, of course, the palpable presence of Jesus and his Holy Spirit until that person just believes. Suddenly, it happens. They look at you with this overwhelmed, sort of shocked, how come I never got this before look? And then come those most magnificent words in the human tongue. Yes, I want to give my life to Jesus. You know, we're told by Jesus himself that a party in heaven then instantly erupts. The angels and saints go wild at the prospects of this new life. And I have often told that person right then, do you know that right this very minute, all of heaven is celebrating the salvation of you? I mean, we can imagine how if, let's say, the prodigal's father got so totally carried away at his son's earthly return. I mean, nothing in heaven and earth can compare to that one's spiritual eternal return. And I've always wanted that person, those people, to get the image of that party in that moment. Now, whether or not you have had lots or little experience of that sort of moment, I want you to put yourself in my shoes in the next moment. In that next moment afterward, when that very same person, eyes still overbrimming with the joy of their decision, then asks the inevitable question, well, um, now what do I do? Be in my place right then. You are looking, remember, into this new believer's eyes. What would you say? What would you advise them? How, according to you, does a new believer take first steps? I say all this because how you direct another, the beginnings that you give them, almost necessarily arrives them where you personally already are. We can only lead others to the degree and to the destination we've ourselves attained. So, where are you in this? And you see, I ask because in our finishing today, the second half of Romans 2, I think we're going to see some weirdly familiar similarities between the first century Jewish believers in Jesus and ourselves as 21st century American Christians. Some of the same sorts of spiritual prides, and even half-beliefs, very similar self-delusions and prevarications. Now, do those sound like places that you yourself would ever want to lead a new believer or even your own heart? No? Then we must do business with them now. We must consider them open-heartedly and truly. Anyhow, that's the way I read these verses, and we'll see what you see in the latter half of this chapter. So, Romans 2, beginning in verse 17. Now you, my reader, who bear the name of Jew, 
Take your stand upon the law and are, so to speak, proud of your God. You know his plan and are able through your knowledge of the law truly to appreciate moral values. You can, therefore, confidently look upon yourself as a guide to those who do not know the way and as a light to those who are groping in the dark. You can instruct those who have no spiritual wisdom. You can teach those who, spiritually speaking, are only just out of the cradle. You have a certain grasp of the basis of true knowledge. You have, without doubt, very great advantages. For those first-century Jewish believers of Jesus in the capital city, Paul is highlighting, I believe, three particular foundations or maybe better, three particular pillars with which their cultural spiritual identity has been built. They bear a name. That was first. Second, they have taken their stand on their knowledge of the law. And then thirdly, finally, they have a certain pride of place, both before God and in God. These pillars both within and without uh, fellowship with Jesus of Nazareth, have then tended toward the list of positive attributes that Paul then offers. Here they are again, and I've kind of put them in my own words. These are the positives. They know God's plan. And, because of familiarity with the law, have a grasp on, quote, moral values. They can teach others about the way this system works. They can be a light to those in spiritual darkness. They can instruct those with no spiritual wisdom. They can move, let's call them babies in belief, into next viable steps. They have some idea of the basis of true knowledge. In other words, great advantages have been given to these particular people. Okay, so those are Paul's positives. But, he continues, But prepared as you are to instruct others, do you ever teach yourself anything? You preach against stealing, for example, but are you sure of your own honesty? You denounce the practice of adultery, but are you sure of your own purity? You loathe idolatry, but how honest are you towards the property of heathen temples? Everyone knows how proud you are of the law, but that means a proportionate dishonor to God when men know that you break it. Don't you know that the very name of God is cursed among the Gentiles because of the behavior of the Jews? There is, you know, a verse of scripture to that effect. So again, bearing a name taking one's stand upon a knowledge of the law and holding in one's heart pride of place both before God and in God did, to Paul, have some positive visible benefits. But apparently, there was another side to the coin. So here's how I would register Paul's negative descriptions. They taught others, not their own hearts. They preached, but didn't necessarily practice. Theoretically, they were against impurity, but perhaps impure? They hated idolatry, but had been taken in by its more subtle forms. No question they were proud of the law, but then they broke it visibly. 
In fact, they'd become a source of confusion and really misdirection for outsiders who potentially might have sought to understand God. Friends, when I think of the similarities between our 21st century struggles and the positive negative ups and downs of these first century Jewish believers, a number of statements sort of rise off the page for my heart. Here's what I would say. Knowledge isn't always ready to teach. Familiarity with something doesn't mean it's arrived in one's heart. Teaching something unhelpful never helped anyone. You and I can only shine light when our own inner life is already illuminated. Instruction without spiritual wisdom confuses. True knowledge will be shown by others' progress around you. A great spiritual advantage must manifest in others gaining life. And lastly, we want all people to learn to bless God, not to curse Him. You see, what you're getting here when you consider the positives and negatives Paul pronounces are are the varying abilities these people are bringing to the spiritual table. And really, that's the way with all religiosity, whether it's Jewish, Christian, or otherwise. Forms and formulas harness the innate personal strengths and weaknesses of people, not necessarily the limitless power of God. In fact, let me just make my final observation and then we'll move on. The Christian religion will only ever be as powerful as the people who populate it. But Jesus, the Christ, is as powerful as we'll let him be. That's the difference between outward observance and inward abiding. One is finite, the other is infinite. We'll continue in verse 25. That most intimate sign of belonging to God that we call circumcision does indeed mean something if you keep the law. Which, if this whole section is an analog for our 21st century churchly challenges, really begs the question, what is our circumcision? And what is our new covenant law? If the first century Jew found life in actually keeping the law, not in the physical expression of circumcision, well, what might that mark and that measure be for us today? Listen to Paul, and I want you then to consider for yourself. I'm going to start again in 25 and read a little further. That most intimate sign of belonging to God that we call circumcision does indeed mean something if you keep the law. But if you flout the law, you are, to all intents and purposes, uncircumcising yourself. Conversely, if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's commandments, does he not thereby circumcise himself? Moreover, is it not plain to you that those who are physically uncircumcised and yet keep the law are a continual judgment upon you, who, for all your circumcision and knowledge of the law, break it? I have come to the conclusion that a true Jew is not the man who is merely a Jew outwardly, and real circumcision is not just a matter of the body. 
The true Jew is one who belongs to God in heart, a man whose circumcision is not just an outward physical affair, but is a God-made sign upon the heart and soul and results in a life lived not for the approval of man, but for the approval of God. That is, as Philip surrenders the language, the true Jew. The one who has moved from external forms into inward obedience. The one whose circumcision is defined by experience of obedience and ensuing Godward intimacy, rather than all life and belief being defined by just what's going on all around. As you were listening to that, verses 25 to the end there, 29, I wonder what struck you. I mean, what words or phrases sounded awfully contemporarily relatable? If it were me, and I guess since you're listening, it is me, I might actually transpose the centuries and just go ahead and read it to you like this. Listen once more in our context. The most relative term of belonging to God that we call Christianity does indeed mean something if you follow Jesus of Nazareth. But if you don't know him personally, follow him, abide in him, you are to all intents and purposes de-Christianizing yourself. Conversely, if an unbelieving man or woman does Christ-like things and reflects him, do they not thereby Christianize themselves? Moreover, is it not plain to you that those who don't go through the rigmaroles of Christianity and yet look like Jesus are a continual judgment upon we who, for all our Christian religiosity and knowledge about Jesus, act as if we've never met the man? I have come to the conclusion that a true Christian is not the one who is merely a Christian outwardly, and that real Christianity is not just precepts and practices. The true Christian is one who belongs to Jesus in heart, a man or woman whose belief is not just an outward religious affair, but is a Holy Spirit incursion into the heart and soul, and which results in a life lived not for the approval of man, even the sanctioned Christian, Christian authorities, but for the approval of that man from Nazareth. How does that hit you, my friends? Thanks for listening.